Hi, Book Club members. I'm Jen. And I'm Carrie. And this is Warhammer 40k Book Club, where we read from a crag. This is episode number 48, and our book is Penitent by Dan Abnett, the long-awaited sequel to Pariah, which tells the continuing tales of Bequin, Eisenhorn, and Ravener and the convoluted web that they weave. We posted several questions on our website, wh40kbookclub.com, and we encourage participation in our discussions via YouTube, our site, or Encrypted Box channel. Spoiler warning. Massive spoiler warning. If you have not yet read this book, go to the site, check out the book in questions, and come back to this episode as we'll be talking about the book from start to finish in great detail. Or if you're like our friend of the show, Panny Mauser, who knows the spoiler and wants to know whether or not you should read the book, welcome. With that, let's dive in. So, as always, did you like the book? Hmm. No, sir, I didn't like it. I settled on the fact that I liked it. I loved parts of this book. Mm-hmm. And really didn't love other parts of this book. So I think if I like combine the two things, it comes down to I like it. I read it aloud to my husband in two days, like two evenings. So probably tells you that I at least enjoyed reading it. I'm not going to say that there weren't parts that were a very fun ride because there were. There were Mm -hmm. some absolutely fun parts, but um, we're going to get into this in great detail. But there's just one thing, and it's not really the spoiler. It's really not that that has me against this book. I'm kind of mad at Dan Abnett. And I know we're going to get into this in great detail. We are. I, I think the thing that I'm maddest about still, and I know if you look, if you listen to the Pariah episode, I apologize um, because I'm going to, I'll try to condense this rant, but I'm still just really angry about the cuff. I have decided that Dan Abnett did not want Beckwin to be a pariah. In this book, in Pariah, I would say she spends about 60% of her time as a normal human being with the cuff on and then about 40% of the time with the cuff turned off. This book, it's like 90% of her time is spent with the cuff turned on. So he did not want a blunter. He wanted a normal human being who occasionally appeared as a blunter for plot convenience sake. The whole cuff. And I also, you guys, I really wish that he would just decide on what the blunters are like. Because, so when he first meets Elizabeth Beckwin and he discovers, remember it takes him a minute to discover. He's like, what's wrong with this girl? Mm -hmm. And then he, he does the command thing and she's like, make up your mind. And he's like, oh, she's a blunter. And then he starts putting it through his mind, right? Where he's like, okay, pretty girl, can never get a break. And if I'm not mistaken, isn't she working as a prostitute? When he when finds, he finds her? her, uh-huh. Um, in this book, when Beckwin turns her cuff off, she talks about, like, Renner running away from her and how some people can't see her and people just, like, run away and try to avoid her because they're so scared of her. You're not going to get a lot of work as a prostitute if that's how people react to you. And to now, Alea says that, like, at worst, she gets people kind of, like, snarling at her. But generally, people are just kind of like, ooh, no, there's something wrong with this person. Mm-hmm. So the fact that this now becomes... I mean, because Eisenhorn, when he figured it out, he was kind of going over, like, you know, how this makes sense, why she's mm-hmm. 
why she's never been able to settle in. He's like, most of them do turn out, if they're female, they do turn out to be prostitutes because that's the only way they can get any work. And there's no chance of the guys getting attached because they just want to have their fun. And then, then they are done. And he said, all he said was like, there's just this feeling of wrongness about it. But even when she got on the ship and his astropath was like, his combo astropath and navigator was like, what is that? It's like, oh, she, what do you say? She's a blank. That's what they used back then. She's a blank. He's like, keep her away from me, which obviously you would need that with the navigator. You don't really want a blank hanging out with the navigator. But if she was really as bad as this Beckwin appears to be, there's no way she could even get into, onto his ship. No. And in the last book, when she describes how the war blind can't see her if her cuff is turned off, at first it was like, oh, maybe there's some like weird psychic thing going on there. That's and what I guess I, I didn't. Hmm? That's what I thought. There's some psychic thing. There's like some psychic thing going on here, but no. She just talks about how, like, oh, yeah, when my cuff is turned off, mostly people ignore me or they're terrified or they run from her. Like, just. It's a lot of inconsistencies. It's so much inconsistency. And. Yeah, so that's my big, huge rant, and we'll have more rants, I'm sure. But let me ask you this. Was this worth an almost 10-year wait? It's hard for me to say, because I didn't really wait 10 years. Um, But I'm going, I mean, just, it's really hard to ask that. Because, you know, like, so when I got into the Harry Potter series, for example... I didn't get into it until the fourth, to the fourth, <laughs> the fourth book. So I had, you know, all four of those at once. And then I had to wait for the fifth. And so, you know, but I didn't wait 10 years. You waited like a year or two. Uh, I think so. I think at one point it was like three or four years between books, but it wasn't 10 years. And most of the time they were worth, they were worth, worth the wait. Um, I remember my dad bitching because he didn't get into the books until book six that he had to wait two to three years for book seven. And he just could not have it. Never done it before. Just couldn't do it. So in a way, it's kind of like, because you were kind of like me, Harry Potter. Like, you never read it. But I'm saying like the analogy here. You were like me. You've read it. You had to wait for the for the mm-hmm. new one. And so um, even though we, we reread it, you know, you might have had a little bit more like anticipation for the second one. Whereas, you know, I had nothing to wait for, so I can't really answer that very well. But um, but considering I'm not a huge fan, I don't think so. Okay. So, there, you, you, you were oh, silenced sorry. for a second. So. so, I don't know. And so I had to go back and I had to like look this up really quickly and I type with purpose. So I meet myself for a second. Um, so when we were reading the Gaunt's Ghost books, they were coming out pretty much like every year or every two years, right? And then there were like these kind of bridges, right? And there's nothing between. So I think I've said this on previous episodes, but we started reading The Song of Ice and Fire when Clash of Kings came out. So we waited three years for Storm of Swords and then we waited like five years for... Uh, Feast for Crows, and then I don't even want to tell you how long we waited 
for Dance with Dragons and then nothing else is coming out. So I think I don't care. I, don't, I really don't care about the Song of Ice and Fire anymore. Um, but I think that kind of burned me on this one. So when I was reading it, like there were parts of it where I was like, really good. But one of the things, one of the chapters that I hated, 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 was the whole numerology chop- chapter when she's talking with Freddie Dance and he's going through all these numbers and it's pretty much just Abnet being like, A, A, see what I did there? And it was like too overly clever and cutesy and I didn't like it. But I had this thought when I was going through it and I was like, is, 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 this what, is, is this why this took so long? Because you were off researching numerology. And trying to come up with your own cipher and how it all makes sense mathematically. You know, the thing is, when I got to that part, I was actually, at first, I skimmed through it because I was like, I really don't care. I just, like, mm-hmm. what's the answer? But then I told myself, no, actually go and read it, try to follow right. along and understand because you know there's going to be some random thing in there that they're going to pull out of their asses, either at the very end or in the next book. Mm-hmm. So I did read it. I did have trouble following following along because I almost think that some of it was overly complicated for the sake of being complicated. Yes, to to throw you off so that you maybe you wouldn't be able to totally follow along and keep everything perfect. I I think maybe yes, and also to kind of show how fractured Freddie Dance's mind was because he like okay so it's on page 277 now keep in mind i'm reading this aloud to my husband i can't so, imagine reading this part aloud oh my god so when i get to the second chapter when he's like and of course you can have longer and shorter versions five equals 101 27 equals 11011 like at that point my husband was like are you kidding me with this and i was like try reading it aloud like <laughs> i was like so over that at that point and there was another portion in there that like sent me through the roof. It, it is the petty hill that I'm going to die on about it. Cause it like just pissed me off so badly. Um, it was the QWERTY keyboard thing. You guys like, I, I understand that from a meta perspective, um, we know that Gothic is based on Latin and ergo uses the Roman alphabet like we do. But if you want me to believe that 40,000 years from now, they're still using the Roman alphabet. You can get out. That is meta humor. And I, I really don't deal with meta humor very well. I don't, I don't ever really have a place for it. Um, there's a difference between fourth wall breaking and meta humor. And this is straight up meta humor. And I was not a fan of it. Um, that whole numerology section. I was just like, is this what we waited 10 years for? I hope not. <laughs> but it was. <laughs> He's off researching. He's like, woo, prime numbers. It kind of reminded me of, and I think I've told everyone that I read a lot of romance novels and my mother reads a lot of like cheap mystery novels Mm -hmm. and they always, the authors for romance and mystery novels, they'll do research into something, right? And then they have to tell you how much research they did. So like one of my favorite conversations I ever had with my mother was when she calls me and she was like, Jennifer, have you heard of the dark web? It's like, oh boy, here we go. So one of her authors had researched the dark web. And so now my mother's an expert on it. I was like, what did this have to do with the plot of your book, mother? Like, oh my God. That kind of like, I felt like that was Dan Abnett being like, look at all this information I have. But you can kind of pick it up with uh, not just Warhammer 40k authors, but with some authors in general, like when they learn a new word. Uh, mm. Or they have a favorite (laughs) word. 
Yes. Or like a new favorite word or something, you know, um, like, gosh, there was this one sci-fi book I was actually reading for review back when I reviewed books. And I guess this guy, either it was this guy's favorite word or he just learned the word inimical. Oh, geez. Because it was used at least once every page. Like right. to the point I'm starting to tally it off because it's just not a very common word to say to begin with, but then to use it so much. I was like, get right. a thesaurus, man. Seriously. Oh, along those lines for people keeping up at home, because I, if you've listened to our podcast, you know, one of my big complaints is how often the word curvy or curvaceous is used to describe Kara Swole. Not a single time in this book. The curvy or curvaceous count is at zero. There was one voluptuous. There was one voluptuous, but I'll allow it. <laughs> so, okay, let's generally we try to structure our questions and our conversations so that we start from beginning to end. But I feel as though we have to jump to the very end, literally the very end. It's the last line of the book so that because this this is going to be the elephant in the room or the custodies in the room, as you would. Uh, and we'll color the rest of our conversations. Haha, <laughs> <laughs> color. Color. Hey. Uh, so the king in yellow's identity has finally been. I'm going to use air quotes revealed. Yes, please. Revealed. Uh, revealed. There's a book. They spend the whole time trying to decipher it. Um, and this is. We'll talk about this in a second. Uh, the very last line of the book reveals that the king in yellow is Constantin Valdor. Dun, dun, dun. So what's your take on this? Do you believe it? Do you take it at face value? Okay, without getting into my rant? Yes. Okay. Without getting into your rant. Yes, I mean, just, I, just let's separate it. All right, so considering this is a book of, from the Cognite, who I don't believe is a trustworthy, I believe the Cognite are as trustworthy as John Grammaticus. I will put it that way. But are they as gullible? Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's probably true. Like, guys, we have to talk about John Grammaticus. Like, literally anybody shows up and they're like, I am the king of the lizard people. And he's like, ooh, that's the king of the lizard people. Like, he just believes, like, literally everybody. I wish I had the type of trust that that man has. Anyways. Which is weird for some guy who has lived as long as he has. And apparently right. was part of assassinating Martin Luther King Jr. or something. I don't know. Regardless. But that's uh, Damon Pertanis, too. Okay. He's the one who killed the good man in Memphis. Right. Got We're it. not going to talk about it. So, anyway. On. <laughs> but I agree with you. But, I mean, so you have this organization that is willing to work with the word bearers. All right? So there's one strike. They've also been known to team up with the Emperor's children. There's another strike. Um, if you guys think in any way that either one of these factions is going to help you, you are no better than John Grammaticus. I agree. And I also think and, that the Cognite... Actually, let's take a step back. Okay. The entirety of the Warhammer 40k universe. Like, I mean, one of the intro, the introductory lines to every single book is that so much has been lost. Right? Mm -hmm. Um... I was actually looking to see what the exact line is. Um, oh, actually, I think they took it out of the new ones. But they talk about how much has been lost, never to be regained. And 
This is true. Like, it, it's not just talking about technology and the promise and the primarchs and everything else, right? It's talking about information and knowledge. And nobody in these books, and we're going to talk more about this in a second. Um, nobody in these books really has the clear full picture, right? Except maybe arguably Reboot. And even Reboot has, like, holes because he wasn't everywhere. And he doesn't really know what's happened in the last 10,000 years since he's been asleep. <laughs> While you were sleeping. Um, it's a fun movie, by the way. Anyway. It's, a, it's an underrated rom-com, actually, and I don't like rom-coms. Um, but they, like, nobody has the full picture. So first off, the Cognite, maybe they just got a name and they put this down here. Also, the book is like this thick and it's all a cipher. Right now, it's possible that Constantin Valdor is that whole cipher, but it also could be Constantin Valdor is still continuing the Emperor's work. Or Constantin Valdor knows where some other guy is. Like, it could be a whole message, right? And they, because remember that he's, they're, they're rushing and he just gets that beginning piece there. Or, so I don't know that I trust it. And also, I mean, keep in mind that the literal- Red hmm. herring. I can't trust the Cognite. This could totally be a red herring. It could totally be a red herring. And, um, it could be so many things. And it also could be that, yes, Constantin Valdor is doing something because he disappears after the heresy. And one of the things for the longest time is that it was rumored he was still working for the emperor, um, like out somewhere beyond. Um, yeah, probably with the absolutely... other king in yellow Dorn. <laughs> yes. Um, but like, part of me was like, you know, he could just be like still doing like a mission. He could have got... I don't know. There's so much going on here that my first reaction... So, my first reaction was, ugh! And I threw the book down. And I walked away. And then I stayed up all night thinking about this. And that's when I was like, we can't take anything at face value or assume that we understand. Especially because it's the last line of the book. Mm -hmm. Like, can you imagine if at the end of Legion they were like, oh... Oh, these guys are talking some truth. Maybe we sh maybe we should listen to them. The end. Like, if you have no idea what they're doing, no idea who the cabal are, they just meet the cabal and then curtain. You know, it's we're going to talk more about that in a minute. Um but and I think also he kind of established that I'm not sure Freddie Dance is totally trustworthy either. Because remember, he's like, oh, this is a missing Primarch. Constantin Valdor. He's not a missing Primarch. And writer knowledge, not character knowledge. Oh, are we going to get into this now? With like, Let's get into this really quickly. Because this is literally the into, best informed planet in the entirety of Warhammer 40k. Into the numbers when he's going into about there, about there being 18 Primarchs. I'm like, well, how do you know that? How yeah. do you know that? That is like... As we learned in reading Chris Rates, uh, you know, Vaults of Terra books, the Inquisition doesn't know. They're not or if they're not supposed to know, because even, uh, gosh, if you read uh, the Keeler image short story with with Eisenhorn, and he's like not believing anything Euphrates Keeler said on there, he's just like, well, we don't really know, you know, we can't let this out because it's obvious heresy. You're saying that the Saint Euphrates, that was heresy, what she wrote in the very beginning. Okay, cool. Because it's not fitting your narrative that there were nine sons and nine devils. Oh, 
and I hate the way that when he says, and he's like, well, you know that the rumor is that there were 20 Primarchs, and everyone in the room is like, well, yeah. There's, it's one thing for the Inquisition to maybe know, to some of them, to maybe know that there were 18 Primarchs, but for the run-of-mill people on the street, no. I don't care how heretical you are, and I use air quotes, because like, they are like, they remind me of like in the 50s when the people who were being called out as like communists and communist actors and stuff. And it's like they're just getting together to, discre- to discuss ideas, right? Like these are basically stoned college kids who are dabbling in heresy um, because they talk a little bit about magic and some of the other stuff that is taboo and you shouldn't talk about. But so the idea that this this guy would know that there were 20 Primarchs and that everyone in the room is like, well, yeah, as one does. Like, yeah, of course, they're the missing two Primarchs. And Beckwin doesn't even bat an eye either. She's like, well, yeah, they're missing. Yeah, no. Girl, no. I mean, mean, the only way I would say she could know is because she was trained under under the Cognitate and we don't know everything that they know. That's true, and it's entirely possible that the cognitive. But then, how does this guy know about it? I know. I mean, okay, yes. Yeah, so he did go to the city of dust, apparently, or he was studying something in the city, and it made him go mad or whatever. Okay, fine, fine. He knows, but there's other random civilians in this room going, "Oh yeah, that's cool." Yeah, the the woman who I can't remember her name, but the woman who's there, right? The grammarian. Well, I-, I loved her. I loved her. She was like, I felt like, yeah, I was like, we could have tea together. We could have tea Um, together. We could have tea and we could talk about so many things. Uh, Like how so is so not an intensifier. Um, But (laughs) she she was delightful. But even she is like, "Mm -hmm." nodding along. Because you would think that as soon as you were like, well, we know that there's 18 Primarchs, but there's a rumored missing too that someone would be like, there's 18 Primarchs? Which... Because that was actually one of the things that I really loved about uh, the Carrion Throne. I can never keep those two straight. When he sees the, the Carrion, when he sees that statue, and he's just like, when "But who are these the nine painting. others?" Oh, the painting! Yeah. Right. It's the painting, and he's like, "What?" Like, I thought that was so wonderful because it just it demonstrated how ignorant these people are because of how much they've lost. And yeah, and, for these. And to be fair, if anyone, if anyone in the Inquisition would know that there was eighteen, it would be the Ordo Hereticus. Uh, yeah. Not Xenos, not Malleus. I'm sorry, just I can't. Not stoned college kids talking about stars. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's what these guys were. It was a drinking club talking about stuff and things. Being edgy right like yeah. but instead of being like what if we had health care for all they're talking about like <laughs> what if psychers aren't that bad like i mean this type of stuff right where it's like you guys are like having they you're having conversations that if you said it in normal it like in normal conversation people might be like mm, i'm uncomfortable by this conversation but and if you said it in front of the like the authorities you go to jail or something like that i don't know it just I, that part i was kind of well, and the other Fine. issue when we get to writer knowledge versus character knowledge, because I haven't texted you this because I was so angry. It oh, was yes. When Beckwin was like, well, you know, like, you know, the Alfarian twin. I'm like, oh, excuse you. It has been established that the emperor doesn't even know that Alfarius had a twin. That was so 
like that was so beyond the pale that I assumed what she was saying is, well, all the Alpha Legion are twins, which I'm like, how and the, do but, you know this? But how do you know that? Because you're not supposed how to know, you know about this? the Alpha Legion. Yeah, like, how do you know? Like, Technically, you've only met one member of the Alpha Legion, and yeah, and he was known as Death Row through most of it. So, how would you know that they all look alike? And he doesn't strike me as a chatty fellow. Uh, no. So, I think the most he ever talks like, about is leave my dog alone. <laughs> pretty much, with his talking dog, which I love his dog. Remind, I do love it so much, but. Uh, so it conjures images of a really underrated, criminally underrated B movie called A Boy and His Dog. Um, it's a weird movie, and I don't know if it's aged well. I haven't seen it since I was a teenager, but it's about um, Don Johnson and his talking dog uh, through the post-apocalypse. But that's all I could. So now I suddenly picture the Alpha Legion members as Don Johnson. I wanted you to all know that. Now all I'm going to see is Miami Vice, damn it. I mean, it's all Crockett. Yeah, it's just a bunch of Crockett's running around. And Crockett's theme plays when they come onto the, onto the scene. Um, Like, greatest theme song from the 80s. So, let's... I think we could dive down this rabbit hole for a while. I want to talk about something that's interesting. Vis-a-vis uh, Constantine Valdor reveal. Arguably, the whole theme of this book is loyalty and the different types of loyalty we have. You have Eisenhorn's brand of loyalty, which is, I'm going to use this phrase and not mean it for the towel, but kind of for the greater good, right? If it means having to deal with some chaos stuff to ultimately save mankind, totally. You have Raveners, which is a little more hard-nosed. You have Medea and Kara, who are just blindly, we'll get into that in a minute, (laughs) blindly loyal to them and really don't think about it. You have Harlan Nail, who's kind of like, I just want to be loyal to everyone at the same time. And then I like so you have, both. Can't we just get along? Can't we all just get along? Um, which is so hilarious again, because he's supposed to be Stone Cold Steve Austin. So I just imagine him just being like, so conflicted. Oh, did you um, like the descriptor for him? And they said he looked Stone Cold. I was like, so reading it aloud, my husband and I both were like, hey, um, but it's all about loyalty. So first off, let's talk about, let's break this all down. What's your take on Eisenhorns? Since I know, I think our, I think our variable lines down there are, yeah. Well, it's my thing with Eisenhorn is that he's open about it. <laughs> this is what it is. This is what I got going on. These are the cards that have been dealt for me. Dealt, dealt for me. This is how it's going to be. That's uh, true. And I gotta, you know, say he's honest. He never tried to really hide Trubail. He really is not hiding him now. He's just hanging out. It's like this little pet demon just kind of flying around. Ah, uh, that's true. I. I think I'm I think I'm the only person who cared about Godwin Fishig. Like every time Cherubel shows up, I'm like, ugh, go away. Like I I can't even tell you how like angry I am toward okay. that character. And again, so, the fact that it's a demon. I forget I totally forget demon. I forgot that Fishig was even a character until after like you mentioned about you know, justice for Fishig, and I was like, What are you talking about? And I was like, be real deep just now. I didn't 
remember him because he was like a nothing throughout the books. Like, I really don't remember very much about him. I remember Eisenhorn's savant because I really liked his savant. I don't remember Fishig, like, at all. Way harsh, Ty. <laughs> but I don't. Oh my god! Um, I really liked Fishig as a character. Like, I mean, I remember really Kara. I remember Harlan. I remember Elizabeth. And, uh, you know, I remember Medea and her father. And, uh, yeah. The savant, yep. Yeah, why we can't have nice things. Um, I, I don't waste my time on characters that don't matter. Okay, he's like a main character in the whole trilogy. Um, but I do, I don't like that everyone pretty much, like the people who are loyal to Eisenhorn have pretty much like, they're like you. They're kind of like, who? Fishick? What? Like, oh, we just knew that guy for like 50 years. Um, I don't like that. So I hate Cherubil. I... I think I think Eisenhorn's honest to a point, but again, the fact that he's got the purple, the warp in his eyes, right, and he's able to smile again. Yeah, but and- that didn't. Oh, okay, but that didn't happen until after he was forced into the chaos machine. I can't. Which fault he then for- tried to use. But so that's you- the part where I fault him because he's like, oh, I mean, if I kill a billion people, but I save a bunch more, this is fine. But if he was never forced in there, he never would have even thought about using it and it's one of those things that when you don't know but when he's forced in there you know you're in that position and you're constantly bombarded by chaos it's really i mean i can't fault him for listening to the song i mean i know it's the whole thing's like oh you shouldn't do that well but you don't know you're not in that situation he's being forced to have basically chaos and the warp washed over him i think anybody would have faltered he actually was able to pull himself back and get out of the machine. Yes, he's now marked for it. Yes, he can smile again. Which I think that was just something Abnet just wanted to happen. <laughs> like, I can't have I can't have this stone face dude running right. around. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, the fact that he still has a demon and that look. He can't let him go. Well, and like, here's the thing. With the Alpha Legion. And I, I know I said this about Pariah, and I'm going to say it again. Could you pick two more le- less trustworthy, more duplicitous people? You've got a guy from the Alpha Legion who, look, I'm sure he's as loyal to you until he won't be. And because his loyalty is probably first to the Alpha Legion. So he's just kind of following you to keep tabs on you, I would imagine. Same with the demon. Like, the demon's super helpful until he's not. Like, you can't, I just, and the fact that Medea, well, actually, I can't fault Medea, because I did think it was very interesting that Medea is loyal to Eisenhorn, unquestioningly. But then Ravener has Kara, who is loyal to him, unquestioningly. Like, they both have these. Even though Kara was with Eisenhorn, you know. Right. I think like, but the fact that they both have these kind of like these father, daughter, sister, brother relationship with them, where it's like, this is like, basically at this point, this is a person like with Kara. I feel like Kara especially really feels like I need to take care of Ravener. Like, I think she feels some duty to him because I'm surprised she's not dead. Yeah. And he probably got her out of prison. And I mean, that would keep me loyal too. 
knowing that I should have burned at the stake somewhere like a witch and he stopped it. Yeah, that's right. where my loyalty is going to lie now. Totally fair. Ravner, I have to say that like at the end of the book, I was like, you two deserve each other. Like, just go off somewhere. And like when they started having their fight and then they took it to the Psyker plane, I was like, ugh, good, just stay there. That made me laugh. I laughed pretty hard about it because I liked the idea when they were just like, we can't physically talk to each other anymore. We gotta go somewhere else. Take it outside. Um, again, I just feel like these two deserve each other. But, so what did you think about Harlan? So Harlan, because you and I talked about this, kind of going back and forth, because while I do see things from Patience's point of view that he just switched sides, well, that's so easy for her to say when she's only been with one Inquisitor. An Inquisitor who, she's a no but lied about what happened to her sisters, by the way. One of those very interesting things about Patience, because I actually love Patience. I always have, and I really liked her in this book. But like, that is one of those things where I always do kind of want to lean in. But I did like the revelation when she was like, look, politics and personality aside, I'm here because I'm loyal to the throne. Like, well, right. I like the well, idea that it's not the person. I'm just saying that, you know, when she's, you know, chastising Nail, you know, oh, for sure. I was like, it's very easy for her to say that when she's only been with one Inquisitor. I think the thing with, with Nail to me, Nail makes sense to me. I know we talked about this, and it's because he was with Eisenhorn for his th first three books. Well, at the end of the third book, Eisenhorn disappeared. There was nowhere for Nail to go. So it made total sense when we got Ravener that Nail would go with Ravener. Well, at the end of the last Ravener book, he was um, really not doing very well after the... Um, no. I don't remember if it was the demon or if it was the Tyranids that got... His girlfriend, who was like the, the niece, the it was the niece of uh, Ravener's, Ravener's fiance. Um, yeah, that's all nice and convoluted. But but he because he, he even said because he was taking her spear or her sword, I don't remember which it was, and was going to take it back to her people. He was leaving. All right, fine. And at the end of the book, we knew Kara was in jail. Patience, I I don't know. And Ravener had his title stripped and was basically, he no longer could use his psychic abilities. He was just kind of confined in his box and he was working in an inqui inquisitorial position as kind yeah. of an administrator. Um, so that, because Harlan needs somebody. So when he hears that Eisenhorn is out and about again with the Magos, it makes sense that Harlan goes out with him. So it makes sense that Harlan is, is still with him. Now, he believes Eisenhorn is dead. Right. And he doesn't even want to go to Ravener. It's Beckwin mm -hmm. who talks him into it. So he finally goes and was just like, God, I really don't want to, you know, I'm here because I got nowhere else to go. And even he's very mm -hmm. honest about that. So when Eisenhorn comes back, because seriously, we all knew he was going to. I don't think there's no way you can read this book and believe that that killed Eisenhorn. There's no. Just no way. It was really just a matter of when and how he was going to appear. Like, it may not have been this book, but he was going to come back. Oh, so yeah. it doesn't surprise me that when Eisenhorn came back, yes, Neil was going to go back. Because that is who his original loyalty was always with. And he only went right. to Ravener and there was nowhere else to go. Right. I think the thing that 
the thing that disappointed me is that he when he puts a gun to Patience's head, right? Like you kind of get the impression that she in that wouldn't moment, calm if, the fuck down. That's if, her biggest uh, issue. Her biggest issue, I think, would was that, and this is the implication that I took from it too, was that if Eisenhorn would have been like, "We're done with these, kill them all," Harlan's Harlan's doing it. Whereas, like, and she like, especially when he when Beckwin was like, "Oh, he was really sad that you died," and she's like, "No, he wasn't." Kind of. I did like at the end, though, I do like that Beckwin's basically like, you guys are such a shit show. Like, there's so much drama here that I like the idea that now she has, she has Patience. She has Renner. She has Comus Nocturnus, right? Like, she's basically creating her own badass team that isn't as tainted and doesn't have all of this history, right? Where they're like, all of this emotional baggage. Because between Ravener and Eisenhorn, I think you could fill Grand Central Station. Which is the baggage. The baggage <laughs> and, and the hypocrisy of them both. Oh, that's why I said at the end of the book, I was like, you deserve each other. Just go off. And that was like one of the things that I remember. So when Beckwin's basically like, here's me and my crew. I was like, oh, good. The adults have shown up, which is really funny because Beckwin's like super young. But like, yeah, Eisenhorn and Ravner need to go off, have a little kumbaya, figure their stuff out. And then the adults will go off and, like, actually tackle the real problem. I liked that idea, even though, like, Renner, I think, is kind of fulfilling that Medea slash Kara role. Uh, I think he's just sticking with the one person who cared about him. You know, he didn't yeah. remember who, who she was. Mm-hmm. So, I, but to me, my whole take on this is they go through all of this loyalty. And I think it was kind of, I think it was metaphorical is not the right word but definitely foreshadowing to be like I've now dropped Constantine Valdor's name but as I just spent an entire book showing you loyalty is a very convoluted thing and it's not cut and dry so I like the idea that like everything you think that you think is going on here there's more to this story with Constantine Valdor which is the other reason I didn't take it at face value of just like oh yeah evil king and especially with, with Ravener He's there meeting with the Eldar. I was like, you? You are of the Ordo Xenos. Like, this is like going against everything. Everything. <laughs> I I was just in shock. I was like, you know, I figured you were the black and white one. And Eisenhorn was the gray one. And now you have gone gray. And yet... When Eisenhorn shows up, you dare accuse him of being a rogue? And like, excuse me? Hello? Pot calling the chair black? I mean, I don't know what else to... No, it's 100% true, and I totally agree with you. But I think that was also... I think that's also kind of, like, leading you up towards this Constantin Valdor reveal. Because it's like, oh, like, Constantin Valdor, especially after reading Chris Raitt's Valdor book... Right? Like, this guy is as loyal as they come, and he's pretty black and white, right? Because he's a custodian. So. I don't think I've not read that book. I have to agree with you on that, which is a shame because it's a really good book. Um, But I kind of liked that the whole time you're like, yeah, Ravener. And like, I was totally Team Ravener. Like, he's towing the line, and he's actually saying, what the shit? Why are the Eldari here? <laughs> that was. I was so like I was so taken back. I was, as the children would say, I was shook, because I did have this moment of like, "What are you 
doing? And yeah, I think it was kind of preparing you that look, not everybody, again, loyalty is a very loaded word and a very strange thing. And in the world of Warhammer 40k, well, I think it's also not only this theme of loyalty, but it's this theme of morality and what's morality right. also in there. Because the way that Ravener sees it, he was like, well, I was just, you know, talking to them about, you know, just getting help. So it's totally okay because right. my intentions are good. Eisenhower could say the same thing about Cherubael because like, he was tormented by this demon. The first two books could not get away from this as much as he wanted to. And so right. then he finally just, you know, brought him into the staff. That's where he had him because he could control him there. And then sadly, mm-hmm. he got out of his control. And sorry, Fishig, happened to be there and you were questioning things. So you had to go. Just kind of how it goes mm-hmm. with the, in- but that's how it goes with the Inquisition. You're questioning things. Doesn't matter if you're a good Inquisitor or a bad Inquisitor. As soon as you get someone questioning what you do. Oh, are you a good Inquisitor or a bad Inquisitor? Uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. And I think that was another thing that made this all kind of very poignant was that you remember Fishig. Remember, there's that conversation when Eisenhorn basically comes to Fishig and is like, I need you to keep me on the straight and narrow. Mm-hmm. And if I ever become one of those radical Inquisitors, I need you to like, I need you to be a friend and tell me, which is what the whole thing when Fishig is like, bruh, this is crossing the line. And you know, Eisenhorn's kind of like, totally. And that's what leads to that confrontation. So I think that, I think that's the other reason that like, especially with this book, with this really murky loyalty, morality, all of that, I'm like, dude, this shit got the fuzzy side of the lollipop. Not fair. <laughs> so let's talk about, speaking of loyalty and murky, a new player, player, okay, so we have the Cognite, we have the Inquisition, Year 3 has entered the field, the Immaterial College. Dude, don't say that out loud. I know, I was like, okay, first off, I would just like to say that scene when they show up with Ravener was beautiful, with the voices coming through and stuff. We just want to know who called us. Nobody called you. Oh, but you did. (laughs) But you guys did. Who's there? (laughs) Well, and it, it's really fun because then post-seance, you're like, oh, so that's why he didn't want to say it. Right. Like, I was thinking it was going to be like, John Smith did it. And you'd be like, oh, not John Smith. But no, the fact that he says that, right? You're like, oh, oh. Uh, but I love the way they describe each of them talking and the personalities. And then once they reveal who all of the players are, you're like, oh, yeah, that's... That tracks. Well, you know, um, they said one was at a thousand, was a thousand sun. I was like, makes sense. Night Lord, totes makes sense. Iron Hand, excuse me? Like Dark Angel. I mean, that could track, but the Iron Hand, like I could, I was so stuck on that. Why do you have such a motley crew? So I was thinking about that. Uh, when we were talking about it actually earlier today, because one thing Mm -hmm. that stuck in my head was, you know, they talked about how, I think it was the Night Lord talked about how they, um, that they kind of congregated on Istvan, 
Now, we all know that a lot yeah. of shit went down on, on Istvan. Istvan is, you know, very famous in the Horus heresy. And what I could actually see with that is just when that all went down and everyone got in it and, you know, the survivors <laughs> came out of their holes when Horus and everybody finally left. I could see a bunch of them being like, both these sides are bullshit. So why don't we kind of do our own thing? <laughs> Which I, I was trying to see if I had bookmarked that page. I don't know that I did. But I loved that. Because, so if you look at the Horus Heresy, three of my favorite characters from the Horus are, in order, Warsmith War Dantioch, uh, Nathaniel Garrow, and Garville mm -hmm. Loken. Because these are all three guys who were like, no, I don't want to side with dad. I'm, I'm, I'm against this. I'm loyal to the emperor. Right. And I really liked that concept, but I kind of like, I always wondered, I was like, when you're talking about legions of like seven, eight, 10,000 guys, like surely somebody was like, screw this. I'm going home. So I really like the idea that, as you said, like maybe they came out of their hidey holes and were like, I don't like any of this. Right. <laughs> None of this is working for me. Like if they're going to do this to each other and we're like, you know, cousins and things like, well, I want out of this family. <laughs> like if the thousand son was like, let's just go make our own group full of psychers and warp. And like a bunch of like these, like a bunch of the librarians and psychers were like, we're on board. <laughs> like, take us with you. Although the Night Lord does kind of suggest that maybe they're not entirely voluntarily there, right? Because he says that's what I was trying to see if I bookmarked the page. When he talks about how we were born in the fires of Istvan and that not everybody's here because they want to be. I And then remember because the, um, the Raven Guard is like, stop talking. <laughs> There's something interesting there. But I, I really like the idea that this group of guys... Because it goes back to one of the things that I think Belisarius Call said that intrigued me the most is when he's like, I have a theory that your father never meant for you to all just be like in single legions. Like he meant for you to work in concert. Right. So like you would have a group of all 18 guys, right? Mm -hmm. Which. Which, you know, that may have been his original plan if they weren't scattered. Because mm -hmm. that might have so worked if they'd grown up together. Possibly. Right. And it's kind of interesting that the Immaterial College is kind of doing that. Although, like, can we can we please be real? Like, the Immaterial College, it sounds like it sounds like a band that would open for the Alan Parsons Project. <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, you know, I'm right. Um, but I do like. I just thought the concept. So now was so I want to make band jackets that say Immaterial College on them. <laughs> Oh my god, yes. And so because you know, uh, what's that first album by Alan Parsons Project with the Eye of Raw on it? Like, I'm telling you, the whole the symbology, it all works. Um, so there is it possible that they know it's Constantin Valdor? Is it possible that the fact that he's breeding blunters left and right has them going, mm, mm, mm. Or do they just not even care? <laughs> I mean, because we don't know. We don't know what their game is. We just know that that was who, Ma'am Mordant, who she was looking to for help. But we don't know 
right. what she was going to ask, how they were going to help her. We don't know anything about that. That's true. That's absolutely true. Um, so they're interesting because player three has entered the building. And we have player four, which would be Ravener's BFFs. They have upped the stakes mightily. Five craft worlds. Somebody please correct me if I'm wrong. But I think there's only like 11 craft worlds. I think they even said that, though, that there's not that many. There's not that many. So this is like at least half of the craft worlds mobilizing for the king in yellow, which I, I found this to be gilding the lily. Because at this point, I don't think five craft worlds mobilized for when Abaddon moved on Cadia. And that's like a big problem that like really did affect the Eldar and like the rest of the universe. So like either they were all sitting around going, so maybe we should have mobilized on that whole Abaddon Cadia thing. So we're not going to take second chances with this guy. But in my mind, it kind of establishes the King in yellow as like the big player. Like Abaddon's cute. This guy though. I honestly, when I got to that point, I literally just said, why not? Why not just make this more chaotic for the uh, sake of being chaotic? Because that's what it felt like to me. Mm-hmm. That's, and I thought like, yeah, I think for the sake of it, because part of me was like, is this necessary? Like, I, I believed that the King in Yellow was a threat without five craft worlds moving on it. And I guess it, it feels like an it feels like an unnecessary time clock, right? Like we have to finish this like quickly, quickly, quickly. Why? Because five craft worlds are, mo- are mobilizing. Oh. oh, okay. Maybe we're just taking it at a leisurely pace previously. But so what do you think, again, <laughs> the Eldari, not huge fans of blunters. What do you think this suggests about what he's doing? I don't know. Like, I, I... No idea. Like, none of it made any sense to me whatsoever. Do you think they know who it is? Do you think they know it's Valdor? Are they farseers? I don't know if they would care if it was. That's the, So I was trying to think, because again... Again, and somebody please correct me if I'm wrong on this. Um, I, I don't think like all these craft worlds mobilized for Abaddon. So like they would have had to have seen something worse than the destruction of Cadia, which again, <laughs> there's something worse. It's kind of like how I'm always talking about like in the light of a lot of the Horus Heresy novels, like what in God's name did those two missing Primarchs do to be killed? Right? Like, again, they would have had, because the Eldari don't do anything without the Farseers being like, this is a problem. So, like, what do they see that's so much worse than Cadia? Who who knows? Because they didn't, you know, uh, if they told Ravener, he didn't share it. Um, Mm -hmm. It sounded like, to me, it almost sounded like they didn't know but they just didn't like it. <laughs> like what this guy was doing. It's hard to tell, right? Because the Eldari are cagey with information. And we've seen that previously. Mm-hmm. Where 
they tell a lot of half truths, well, right? Yes. And they obfuscate a lot of. They don't lie, but they don't say everything either. Right. Like I, I have a feeling that they would one hundred percent be the people that if you were like, "Why didn't you tell me about this?" They'd be like, "You didn't ask." Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And again, I, I felt like that, like that whole scene. I think it was just there solely to up the stakes and to show that Ravener's not as squeaky clean as he thinks he is. And I did like how Patience was like, not okay with this. Because again, they were supposed to be the good guys, right? The and, straight um, and narrow. Mm-hmm. Turns out no. Uh, yeah, well, Patience, you guys forget that you guys had a demon in your midst and Ravener, again, one of the greatest psychics of all times, had no idea. You know, so you mentioned that, and so going through this book with the whole the whole pariah thing, where I was like, this is just a plot convenience. Because, again, there are two scenes, which we're about to talk about one of them here, there are two scenes when it really matters that she's a blunter. And so really at that point, it's just a plot device. And my first thought is, I was like, ugh, I don't remember him having this many plot devices. But then we were talking about Ravner and I was like, oh, actually that like whole book is like plot device. Because again, you have demon in your midst and those two people who he's like, oh, these guys are fine. And then they betray everybody. And he's like, because yes. <laughs> he put together what we put together as soon as these people like walked on a ship. Before right. they walked on the ship. Right. Like, yeah. Again, plot convenience. Well, it's the same thing with his blunter that he had on staff. I don't remember the name of his blunter, but you know, yes, he he didn't um, have a cuff; he had a collar, and mm-hmm. um, you know that uh, Zale was able to wear him. Oh, I hated that. God, I hated that. But then again, if the collar was off, apparently, apparently, if the collar's on, yeah, you can totally just take him over. I guess. Yeah. Not I'm not I'm not digging it. I'm not digging it. I'm not buying it. <laughs> still, and that's still one of those things that I'm like <clears throat> because again, it feels very plot devicey. Maybe that was just him establishing that in that book. Um Possibly. Possibly. So what do you make what do you make of the city of dust? We've got this beautiful, symmetrical building place filled with cloned blunters filled with the warp being kept at bay like there was so many interesting details going on in here what do you make of the city i know i keep saying this but i don't know it's just it's and it's mostly because we didn't get very much in it either you know and 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 the one thing they kept saying they're like you haven't been processed yeah, like it's very hard to come in here and experience all of this without kind of going through everything. So, very much like indoctrination was my take. That's on it. what I thought too. Um, so, and you know, of course, it just got super creepy when they're like, "Are she even supposed to be here?" And then another Beckwin popped up and was just like, "Well, yeah, she had like, look, she's from the Elizabeth Beckwin stock. She has my face, like." I remember when Judica gets the spider in his throat. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I think, I mean, at the implication was clearly this was also going to happen to her, and eventually she would get there once she got to the right point. I mean, Which a lot of ways, I didn't pick up on very... until they started hammering it home in this book. They're like, she's like, well, I was supposed to be a grail. I was like, what? When was that established? Because you got sold. You know what? Whatever. Whatever. Yeah, I think, like, she kind of susses it out in Pariah, but then, yeah, the way that she kept mentioning it in here, I was like, Okay, I just thought that was kind of your own inference. But, and they do, I mean, they do kind of, they do kind of say it in the first book. But yeah, they really hammered it home this time. I hate the whole grail concept. That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, It's another thing by convenience. Plot convenience. Um, Not a fan. Uh, But, yeah, like, there's all these clones there who are all clearly, like, in military, like, they have, they're clearly, it reminded me a lot of like aspirant training for the space Marines, right? It's like, you have to go through all of this stuff and then eventually, right? Which I guess maybe that's what he needed the cognitive for was to breed all of these guys and make them, I don't know. All right, here, here's another, it just, this just dawned on me. Hmm. Why I'm, I have a hard time believing this is Valdor. So one of the things that the cognitive was doing, um, hmm that we really got into with the Megas was the whole determination of Enuncia, the unwords. Right. And their whole thing with that, even though we know it's like a demon language, they were like, well, that's going to find out the emperor's name. Right. Why would Valdor have them working on that when he most likely knows the emperor's name? <sighs> so I went I went back and forth on this as well. And I really gave a lot of thought of this because actually, and again, giving credit, Panny, Mauser, I hope I'm saying that last word, right? Um, she DM'd me on Twitter and was like, so how does this work in with Apocalypse? Because we know that St. Dreadnought knows the word. And I was like, that's a good point. Because Abnet didn't read that either. Yes. I'm salty. <laughs> very salty and it's mostly about the author it's really nothing in this book it's about the author but we'll get into that salt with your salt madam you know i'm right um um, yes actually i do know that you're right on that one um but the answer is i don't know i don't know if it's that maybe valdor never even knew it like this could be one of those things i have such a hard time believing that i don't know i go back and forth on that too where i'm like well clearly he would have known but then also like maybe not maybe that was always the emperor's safeguard right that he's like yeah nobody knows this but the word bearers do well yeah but it's also a possibility that maybe Maybe it's one of those things where, like, Valdor was leading them down a false trail. Where he's like, oh, yeah, you'll totally figure out the Emperor's name through that. Mm-hmm, totally. And, like, keeping them distracted on something else. Or maybe it's entirely possible that Valdor went off to do something. And here's where part of me is thinking about this. And I'll explain that in a second. But maybe it's like he went off to do a thing. Maybe it was at the Emperor's behest. And then was like, you know what? I kind of like this place and I kind of like what I'm doing. And I really just kind of have my own thing going on now. And maybe that's his fail safe. Maybe his fail safe is I, I need to know this information. 
But then again, I feel like Constantin Valdor could have done that on his own. I don't feel as though he needed the cognitive for that. He doesn't strike me as the type of person who would want to send gophers after that. No, that's right. Um, that's not his style. No, like absolutely use the cognitive as a breeding program. That's definitely not something that Valdor would want to deal with, right? Like that's what you hire gophers for. Like go for the breeding program. Go for bringing me blanks. Not something like the emperor's name and but again i so here's the part that that really catches me the fact that they have these blood angels there who are all experiencing the black rage so my first thought is i was like what if what if in the wake of the heresy because remember they say that after sanguinius is killed a bunch of the blood angels go berserk mm -hmm. so what if like what if Constantine Valdor is like, oh, I'm just going to exit these guys stage, right? Like, I'm going to take him to the farm. And he gets onto the farm and then they, somebody calls him and is like, oh, um, by the way, this is like a thing. Like, we have like a hundred more of these guys. And he's like, oh, well, screw it. But I don't know. Like, I can't figure out okay. why the Blood Angels are there. Considering that Valdor was the lead on destroying the Thunder Warriors, I don't think he would take Blood Angels out to the farm. He'd take them out to the pasture with he'd a take them gun. behind the shed. Yes. Yeah, he would, he'd old yellow them. Yeah. Because we've seen what the custodies think of the space marines. Mm -hmm. And it is not positive. They are space mm -hmm. marine killers. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So, I can't figure out what the purpose of them is. However, I will say I love and hate. I love the idea because remember they've they remember call says he's like well we kind of thought that it was a genetic thing the black rage was genetic but now we're we're pretty sure it's spiritual i love the idea that being next to a blunter snaps him out of it yeah i hate the idea that just being around her once snaps him out of it that it's like throwing a bucket of cold water on him and he's like oh i'm awake now um i would kind of okay, like so the are idea. you actually thinking hmm Am I thinking what you're thinking? I think so. But if you put a bag of holding into a portal gun, the world would explode. Okay, that's very valid. That's not what I was thinking. Oh, um, I got nothing then. And I can't see Valdor doing this either, but finding a cure for the Black Rage? It really does seem to be the hot button issue. And it's really hysterical to me. I would love the idea if like Mephiston went through all of this dramatic stuff. And then really they were like, oh, actually, you just need to get a blunter near you. It's all good. <laughs> like, get us some Sisters of Silence. <laughs> like, that's the cure for the Black Rage. That would be hysterical. Um, but I really did like the that idea. Like that when when he like looks up at her and he's like, whoa. <laughs> Full body chills. I thought that was awesome. And super cool. But the idea is that it's just like a water splash. I slapped you in the face, told you to snap out of it, and now you're fine. I didn't love that as much. Well, he also kind of suggested it was because he just ate. So, like he said, a lot of that was the red thirst as well. Yeah, I also noticed that. And then later he mentions he's... So I was like, oh god, so he's going to become a problem as long as she's not a blunter and he's hungry. But then he eats pigeons later. Which... Well, they're city rats with wings. They are rats with wings. Yeah. I, um, 
Oh, I can't think of his name. Oh, it's Louis. Louis from uh, Interview with a Vampire says hi. <laughs> the rats. Um, <laughs> he ate chickens. He ate the rats, too. Oh, I, only, I only remember the chickens. He ate rats, too. Hmm. Um, But I really liked that idea. But again, I can't figure out, like, why does he have them there? Does he have them there as just pretty little toy things? Because he really doesn't like the space marines. And he's just like, yeah. You go flutter about like seagulls. I, none of it makes any sense. Especially with Valdor being behind it. It does not make sense. Like this is the Chewbacca defense, okay? It does not make sense. Yeah. So let's talk about this. You, you already kind of mentioned that your big issue is with the author, not necessarily the reveal. Um... Hit me, sister. <laughs> My big thought when I finished this book, the first thing I did is I texted Jen, just all in caps, nope. And which is really aggravated was not that they said Constantine Valdor, because again, like Jen said, I was already thinking like, oh, we can't take anything they say for, for face value. But this is something that has been nagging at me since Abnett's interview that he did with that whole Black Library reveal. When he said he's just like, there's a big lore game changer in this. And my response to that is, why does there have to be? You don't have to change the world with every book you write. And that's what you've been doing for like the last two or three years. It's been trying to change the world with every book you write. You said it kind of happened with the Gaunt's Ghosts, finishing up the Gaunt's Ghosts. It obviously happened in um, um, Siege of Terror. Saturnine. Saturnine. And it's happening now here. And I feel like it's this guy who has come here and been like, hey, remember me? I was cool. Remember remember Horse Rising? Did you like that? Did you like that very much? I can still write that way. Lore bomb, lore bomb, lore bomb, lore bomb. We don't need it every single book. Not even Guy Haley, who I think actually has... I love the way Guy Haley does lore bombs because he's so subtle. It is not just right there, all in your face right there and mm -hmm. he doesn't do it every goddamn book it's ridiculous that is my biggest problem because graham mcneil doesn't do it every single book either no and so i have very strong opinions about the prequel trilogy um but one of the scenes from the prequels which is arguably like one of the worst is the yoda lightsaber fight and if you've ever seen the behind the scene commentary, George Lucas is like, oh, fans have really been waiting to see this. And the answer has pretty much universally been no, nobody wanted to see this. And one of the things that I will passionately argue is that George Lucas didn't understand why fans enjoyed the original trilogy. He didn't understand why people loved the Jedi. He didn't understand why people loved Yoda and lightsabers. And so he took all the wrong messages from that. And I think Dan Abnett has gotten into a similar place where like legion people loved legion and the reason for it was that the alpha legion was always very mysterious like we knew why fulgrim fell to chaos we knew why perturbo did like we knew all of these people but the alpha legion was always kind of this because mm, and the fact that they were always renowned as being very sneaky duplicitous people but not really that was it like that was their defining characteristic so when he out and he was like so 
here's what's going on. That whole thing in Legion, it made sense, right? You were like, whoa. Similar to Josh Reynolds when in Apocalypse, when he reveals that all of the sermons are old Lorgar material. It's like, this makes sense. Mm -hmm. This totally makes sense. When he gets to the end, and this book especially, I feel like, was pretty bad about it when he's like, the king in yellow is Constantine Valdor. Good night, folks. And he, like, leaves. And so we're just sitting there going, what? And <laughs> your joke that you made is that we just get to wait another 10 years to find out. Um, I think he doesn't understand why, like, lore bombs. And I have to admit, yeah, when he was like, you're going to wonder how they let me do this. I'm wondering how they let you do this. I really am. They let, they let you do this because you're Dan Abnett, and I think you've taken advantage of it. Yes. And I feel as though, so for a long time, Dan Abnett, it, like mass respect, total respect. Some of my favorite books in the Black Library, in fact, one of my favorite books of all time is written by Dan Abnett. Like the guy, he was the guy mm -hmm. for like a decade. He was the backbone. And for a really long time here, you may feel free to at me on this one. But for a long time there, him and Graham McNeil were like, there were them. And then there was like everybody else who was writing for everybody. And they were the cornerstone. And he wrote so much. Like he's laid the foundations and he built the house. But then he went away for several years. And you got all of these really talented authors in there, like Chris Raitt and Guy Haley, who have really been moving the lore forward. And of course, ADB, I'm an unabashed ADB fangirl. Like, these people who've been moving it forward and doing all of these great things. And I think you're right. I think rather than Dan Abnett being like, so proud. I'm so proud of what they've done with what I built. He's like trying to come in. He's like the grandfather who's coming in to show that he can to he can totally do a kickflip on a skateboard. Cool, cool story, bro. But did we ask? And the lore bombs just feel like they feel really out of left field and there's nothing there that makes me go like, and I know that I have beat this dead horse to death. And so I apologize in advance. I'm only going to mention the one thing, but like when um, I can't remember Karen's name, Erda, I think it is when she says, "'Twas I that scattered the Primarchs. Nobby, we already saw that happen. And it could just be that John Grammaticus is like a gullible guy. And this lady's just crazy. Um, but it wasn't one of those lore bombs where you're like, oh, this totally explains everything. Like with Legion. Right. Here's another. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Here's another good lore bomb that's done in a very tasteful way that's actually fitting with the narrative that the new guard has been setting. And that is the death of Uriel Ventress. Graham McNeil is not coming in here and being like, blowing stuff up he's like can i move uriel into this new world too and that's fantastic mm -hmm. so learning that he's going to be uh, that he is now a primaris marine that's amazing he's not going in and being like oh you know what marnius calgar killed right <laughs> calgar turns out absolutely all along right or, or god uh, can you imagine that oh my god you're absolutely correct. And actually, one of the things that... So he just did a recent short story called The Labyrinth of Lost Souls. He does an interesting little, um, but what if? Mm -hmm. A 
Primaris wakes up and goes berserk. And it's because the Belisarian furnace. And I imagine it's because of the trauma suffered from going through the Primaris, like the Primaris Mm -hmm. process, which sounds so brutal. The Belisarian furnace kicks off. And it's, it's interesting story because it basically. I read it last night. Yeah. So, you know, then Mm -hmm. that like, typically we've seen the Belisarian furnace go off and it empowers these space Marines to do these triumphant last stands this pretty much suggests that like they're like this far from being a cornite berserker at that point because they are just in murder mode which is interesting mm-hmm. right it's very interesting that you know what the belisarian furnace is really super cool but there might be a few bugs in the software here <laughs> software because it's in anyways hmm. uh, again uh that's a really interesting way to do a not a lore bomb but like a tweaking right and i feel like i feel as though gee haley and chris rate have also like when they the thunder warriors chris rate when he like he explains the whole purpose of valdor i would argue is to explain why the thunder warriors get exited stage right where he's like these guys were unstable af Mm -hmm. right that's very interesting um, well, I guess one lore bomb you could say that was in there was when it's revealed that the person who invented the whole process of being the Adeptus Astartes was a woman named Dr. Astarte. You know, so that was... Right, because that's in Belisarius' call when they tar- they go through all of that. And, like, it wasn't just the emperor doing this by himself. Right. He had top well, men. Well, well th- that, right, that guy, he was, he helped develop the Black Carapace, but it was like, but it was Valador who actually said, Astarte was a person. And by the way, it was a woman. Who ended they say up, that in, they say that in Belisarius' cult. I don't remember that at all. They talk about I, Anna Astarte. I don't remember that. I just remember them talking about, well, you, but even then that's still a lore bomb. That's just kind of like, hey, look, this, this is who, this is who did it. This, that was, that was all big news and big information. And my favorite gag, and I finally remembered what it was, is when they talked about lands, or land, and they were like, he would hate to know that they named the land raider after him, that it's lands raider. (laughs) Hilarious. But, like, those are how you do really good lore bombs, because you're not really bombing it. You're more of just fleshing this out. And again, much like the Legion plot twist, you sit there and go, this makes sense. Right. Much like Apocalypse, you go, this makes sense. This is out of left field. This, all this is, and I would argue the same thing with Saturnine as well, is that that is throwing a wrench in the lore just to do so. And, you know, and we both say this as people who have been reading comic books for, like, a really long time. That, to me, is very comic booky. And I hate it when they do that in comics. I hate it. Because you know what always happens in comics? They retcon it and go back to how things were. They do retcons. They do reboots. People um, come back to life. You, can do that. you know, I mean, right. DC has just done it. Like that their whole redone after the death metal. It's source wall shit. I don't know how else to put it. It has literally gone back to everything it was before rebirth. So as I was telling a friend of mine, who really, we were both into DC comics. We're like, wow. So just, Throw away everything you've read for the last three to four years or even longer. That's what happens to this stuff. Well, and like I was totally on board with the new 52 and then they just were like, nah, never mind. Um, and that's that's why they can do that kind of stuff. And comic books do it all the time, right? Where like 
Oh, <laughs> you thought it was this? No, no, it was really this. Yeah, why, all along. yeah. Why don't you ask Marvel how well it went to have uh, Captain America actually be an agent for Hydra? The answer is it failed, and that guy no longer writes for Marvel. He lost, he lost both of his. Uh, writers like he was writing captain america and he was writing falcon and he lost them both yep because you know yeah maybe you want to be edgy and everything people don't like chaos for the sake of chaos no matter what you think is a good idea nobody likes it like that if you want to introduce chaos like that you gotta do it slowly you just can't suddenly be like Valdor is the big bad we've been talking about since, you know, the middle of Eisenhorn. Mm -hmm. You can't... No. No, you're doing that for the sake of trying to be like, look at me, look at me, and that's all I can think of. When I read that last line, I was like, this... Not only does this not make any sense, but you were only doing this to call attention to yourself, and that, hey, I am changing the lore at every moment I can because I am Dan Abnett. Well, you know what? I love Dan Abnett. He's a good comic book writer. I loved, there's one series he did that I just absolutely loved. Uh, I loved his Tomb Raider books. They were fantastic. Oh, right. I, you know, I Horace Heresy, Horace Rising is probably one of my favorite books in this entire uh, whole Warhammer 40K. Probably mm -hmm. one of my favorite books ever. I'm sorry, man. You've lost it. Again, though, I think it comes from that comic bookie. And this is, again, this is one of the things that I've always hated about comic books is that, like, I challenge you to explain to me Scott Summers' origin story. I don't want to. It, well, because it's so convoluted and you have to be like, well, which version are we talking about? Or explain are to me Are we going to talk about the one where, you know, Mr. Sinister is the one who actually takes care of him and gives and gives him the optic lenses? Or are we just going to talk about mm -hmm. the time he just magically had optic lenses, these Ruby Quartz optic lenses? Pretty much. Yeah, exactly. We're going to talk it, about which, which death he came back from and how? I mean, which origin exactly. story? Exactly. And the fact that comic books are always like, oh, well, so uh, turns out he got into a car accident, like a plane crash when he was a kid. And that's what gave him his mutant powers. Oh, no, it wasn't just a plane crash. It was because of aliens. And then, oh, it wasn't because of a plane crash and aliens. Mr. Sinister was involved. And it just keeps getting more convoluted and convoluted. And it's always these like major reveals because it does make people buy them and go, what? Mm -hmm. But after a certain amount of time, it's like, and the reason that it works in comic books is that well that's just this that's just this version right. right they'll they'll fix that later um like as much as i love batgirl right um history of her batgirl and the killing joke batgirl gets shot by the joker it severs her spine and then she becomes oracle and this was actually a huge thing because dc comics was like we're actually going to keep this and like make this a thing so she became oracle she was she was paralyzed she was in a wheelchair well, in the New 52, I think which one it was, in the New 52, she just wakes up one day and she's like, whoa, I can walk again. Like, this oh. is crazy. Okay, so but they've made that now. She has a back implant. Yeah. So, as I said, you guys, it's convoluted. But the point being that there's no stakes. And that's the thing that I really worry about with some of the stuff that Dan Amnett's doing is because when you start to change, like fundamentally change the lore and add these bombs in there it's okay to do that in comics because there's no stakes which 
okay is a strong word because it's actually one of the reasons that I'm kind of like I'm not currently reading any DC or Marvel because I'm just so over the lack of steak. Anyways, <laughs> yeah, it's just paper, no steak. Uh, but the fact that like nothing really matters, like they're gonna kill this character, yeah, until they bring him back. Um, I don't want that to happen to Warhammer 40k where they have to start going through and rebooting stuff because they're like, okay. We're just going to redo the Horus Heresy because all of that stuff happened. Like, does that become the, what was the mealy mouth term that Disney used for the old Star Wars legends or something like that? Right. Does this just become legends? Does this become, oh, well, that was in Warhammer 40k universe one. Now we're in universe two. You know what? I, exactly. Oh my God. Like, do we just. That would, that would kill me. That would absolutely kill me. I would. You know, die. And, um, and I'm and that is something I think that um that the uh those who have loved the Star Wars extended universe have had to go through. And so. as much as I don't give one rat's ass about the Star Wars extended universe, I totally understand how much it sucks when you get really involved in this extended universe only for it to be no 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 no, none of that counts anymore. We are redoing it. Oh wait, now we've decided that some of this stuff counts, but only like these couple of things. And then they're going to decide later, oh, you know what? We actually did like this one thing. We're just going to keep that too. It becomes ridiculous. And it made me mm -hmm. so thankful. I never got into the Star Wars extended universe. You know, watching right. all this, especially watching with some of my, with all, well, with our friends who are really into it. Well, and I think. Who've had issues with this. So they retconned. They made the, oh, it's all legends. It's all legends. We're not going to use any of it. Mm -hmm. Except that that Thrawn guy's pretty cool. So we're going to bring him in here. And then this other thing's pretty cool. So we're going to bring that in here. And they retconned everything. But then they realized that, mm, actually, some of this stuff was kind of good. And that's, again, that's what I don't want to get onto this. I'm just worried, you guys. I'm so worried. And you can sit there and you can be like, well, it's not going to happen to Warhammer 40K. And yet, like, I think people thought that about Star Wars, too, right? right? Like, I think everybody thought that those books weren't going anywhere for good or bad, right? Like, I was one of those people who would just torch the entirety of the Star Wars expanded universe just to get rid of the Mandalorian trilogy. Um, or Talon card. Again, feel free to at me on that one. Uh, but, like, there's just... With Marvel, too, I would I would torch a bunch of stuff in Marvel if we could just go back to one continuity. Continuity. Um, it makes it very more interesting. And again, I just worry that this is like, as you said, just like, I'm cool. I'm hip. I have the 411. I'm jiggy with it. Like, it's duck -a, totally. Duck -a, duck -a, duck -a, duck -a, exactly. Uh, yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> like, I feel like it's him trying to, like, when I use slang around my kid, like when I use the word yeet around her and she's just like, and I'm like, yeah, that's how bad you sound. But it's like, he's trying I don't like it and it's it's just frustrating and it's not that I fear change I'm just like no because we were fine we were fine with change when Kadia blew up we got Gollum and out oh okay we are on board this is kind of fun right and I think again the thing that I can't get away from is that he's basically propped up Valdor as being this huge figure that needs to be dealt with and I, I hesitate to use the word big bad but when you have five craft worlds mobilizing that's a big bad. And it, the thing that upsets me so much about it is that they spent all this time 
going to make Abaddon basically make his entire like history be a giant Xanatos gambit, right? Like where it's like, oh, I'm sorry, you thought that those Black Crusades failed? <laughs> it was never his goal, you guys. He was destroying the pylons, which my first reaction was kind of like, what? But then when I started reading it, I was like, oh no, this works. Because now Abaddon is no longer Phaladon. He's now <laughs> a very real and frightening presence. And a lot of the books that we've been reading have been moving mm -hmm. toward this. And I feel as though this just tend like, it's like, <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it. It's like the car that just comes out of nowhere and drives Abaddon right off the road, right? Where it's like, whoops. At the same you time, though, Abaddon. the other thing I keep rem reminding myself is that this all happens in the past. This is like nowhere near the turning to the 42nd millennium. So in a way, none of this matters. <laughs> That's a thing, right? You're absolutely correct because we don't have years anymore. But do you have your copy of the Magus nearby? I don't actually. Okay, because there's a um, timeline in that that has the exact year that both Eisenhorn and Ravener arrive on this planet. Right. And um, that is true, actually, how huh, to find Beckwin. Because we really don't have, like, I don't have off the top of my head. And I guess maybe that's what it is. Like, maybe the five craft worlds, they mobilize to take out the King in Yellow. And then they realize, oh, that was really not a threat at all. So when Abaddon's like, I'm going to destroy Acadia, they're like, sure, Jan. You know, like, we got fooled by that once before. Um, but still, I just... I think you're right that it's like, this takes place in the past. If it takes place in the current timeline, if it takes place in the past... Well, we know it doesn't take place in the current timeline because Eisenhorn said how old he is. And for him to be in the current timeline, he would have to true. be, like, close to 600 years old. That's true. That's true. And I do tend to for I I do forget that this does take place way in the past. But then again, I guess that does make this all just a giant shrug. Yeah. Cool. Stuff happened. I guess. Which just like, makes, you know, throwing a lore bomb out like this just kind of more pathetic. Definitely more frustrating where I'm like Because I mean, to be honest, the whole thing could have ended after Rav after Eisenhorn. T to be fair, Ravener trilogy was not a good trilogy, at all. Agreed. Um, I... The Beckwin stuff. I, I don't like clones, so I'm. But no, this I to me clones. never. I mean, that was so out of the comic book realm to introduce clones because that's what it always comes down to in comics is clones, clones, and then okay. aliens, and then anyway, um, time travel. After aliens, you time get time travel. travel. Oh, there's time travel in the third book. Like, I'm just going to burn them all to the ground. Like, nope, not dealing with this. Well, and to your point there, like, I hate clones so much. So when I got to the end of Resident Evil 6, which is one of my all-time favorite series, I've been playing it since I was 16. Um, when they revealed that Ada Wong was a clone, I was like, I'm out. And then everybody was like, oh, you've got to play the demo before the village came out. Everyone was like, you got to play this demo of Resident Evil. And they played it. And then Ada Wong shows up on the telephone. I'm out. I'm out. All the way out. I don't want clones. I'm not. What if she's the real fan. thing? <laughs> she better not be. She was killed. Oh. 
um, yeah, kilt. And then she shows up again and you're like, how? And that's when they reveal the cloning. And I bet you that Alexa Ashford is pretty ticked off somewhere. Because she's like, you guys had cloning this whole time? Anyways, I digress. That's how much I dislike the cloning stuff. So I just, yeah, I, I'm kind of on board with it because I did like parts of it. And the part where like Beckwin is becoming this inquisitor and like chasing down the cognate, like that's all fine. It's all fine. Mm -hmm. Keep on that. Like, why did we need this giant lore bomb in there? We don't. Um, it was so really oh it's so unnecessary. Because to be honest, like I said, this is all in the past. I don't care who the king in yellow is. To me, that has never mattered who he was. It was just a matter of stopping what he was doing. I think kind of right. You know, so I will say that, so one of the reasons, because I knew, I knew there was a huge lore bomb in this. Abnet teased it. It started getting spoiled online. I managed to avoid the spoilers. I was like, okay, we need to read this. This is like um, the shake and bake pork chops that your mom made that you didn't really like all that much. But like, I mean, it's okay. It's a meal and it's, it's satisfying. And I'm not sad that I ate dinner. But we read that one so that then we could follow it up. Oh, yes. Our dessert. Yes. So excited to start reading this. Unbelievable. So excited to start reading this. I'm so excited. Um, and I think, I think, look, even if you're okay with the plot twist and everything, and I just realized that we've gone so long in this episode, um, even if you're okay with the plot twist, like, I, I'm, I'm good on intrigue for a while. I just want to get back to some Spess Marine shooting stuff. Where I know there's not going to be a huge lore bomb in it. <laughs> Watch there be one and we're going to be like, oh, damn it. Um, <laughs> I, I trust McNeil, though, because McNeil does seem to. I read the foreword in the beginning of the book, and I think he's just so happy to be writing Space Marines again, and especially Uriel Ventress. Mm -hmm. Like, so excited. And again, this is like the third shout I'm going to give to Panny Mauser again. But she actually tweeted at me. It was like, confirmed Pisadius is in the book and it was like oh my god <laughs> so happy so I don't do could it be a real Uriel Ventress book without Pisadius I mean let's be real we had we had the one okay but he was in jail that's a slightly different oh and that was at least and that was actually that was the worst book that's book five right that's the worst mm -hmm. book yeah Sorry, Gra yeah. sorry, Graham. It it was the worst book. Not not my favorite book of his by far. Um, it was the worst book, especially when you compare it to in like, the trilogy in that four and six. series. I'm not saying it's worst book he's ever written. I don't know if I've read one worse, but it was the worst book in that series for sure. So anyway, before right. we digress Definitely into something else, one. yes, so, want to take us out? Yeah. So you've listened to the Warhammer 40k Book Club episode regarding Penitent by Dan Abnett. Be sure to join us for our next book, Swords of Calf by Graham McNeil. We are an unofficial book club and not affiliated with the Black Library or any of its affiliates. You can find both the vidcast and podcast on our website, wh40kbookclub.com. If you like this episode, please like, subscribe, give a review, and all those things to the vidcast on YouTube or the podcast on anywhere you get podcasts. Don't forget, we also have a Patreon where we offer two different tiers of content for your viewing and listening pleasure. You can learn more about that at patreon.com slash wh40kbookclub. 
Our site also has articles about our adventures in reading other Warhammer 40k books and short stories outside of the book club books. So please stay a while and read from a crag. Good night, everybody. Oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm Alfarious. I have the mug to prove it. Truce. I lined my finger up perfectly with that book. You did line up. I'm very proud of First you. First try. So proud. <laughs> also, the coffee bug that for some God knows what reason is sitting there. I didn't notice that you pointed that out, but, you know. Good night, it everybody. It is not treacherous. Good night. <laughs>